In this episode, we're having a conversation with faculty about linguistic bias. How do we welcome diverse voices and prevent privileging one dialect over another? For service in standard American English, press one. All other demonstrations of learning, please press two. So Maria, how is a discipline that teaches formal language structures racist? Okay, so before I begin, um, I would like to acknowledge first and foremost where I am speaking from and uh, speaking from the coastal lands of the Kumeyaay Nation or the Luiseño uh, peoples. And I'm just grateful to be here among everyone uh, present virtually. So in terms of it being, how is it racist? Um, I think that when a cultural lens informs, when the cultural lens dominates the way in which a language is structured and taught and perhaps even enforced at the expense of, of excluding and further marginalizing and disempowering another community, whether they are of those quote native lands uh, or territories or cultures, that is when it becomes racist beyond quote bias. And so, you know, it, it assumes that there is a deficit. It assumes that there is a weakness uh, within the community that is encouraged, if not forced to assimilate into this particular linguistic structure and therefore is allowed to engage in a cultural exchange, a social and political context as well. So when we think about racism and how it is to maintain a particular racial structure. Language oftentimes is associated with culture and, and a racial marking or position um, due to our long history of, um, in the context of the United States or in the context of continental America and the Caribbean, when we think of colonization and conquest and the imposition of particular language, languages. I think that's when it becomes synonymous with the um, with the racial order and the racial hierarchy. So, like tying that into what's really discipline specific about this larger topic we're exploring, which is linguistic bias, and and what you said about these assumptions of of deficiencies or this deficit model kind of thinking about language and, and the language that people use. How do we also kind of think about that in the larger context of at a college, for a lot of people, there's an assumption that students are coming here because they lack something and we have the something for them. And so how do we reconcile that with the idea that we also, you know, people are approaching language in the same way? Does, does that question make sense, Maria? Well, it, it does. It does in the sense that, um, I think it's okay that that colleges or educational academic institutions are of service to the community, that they offer something that they can invite people to learn and to grow as a, as a premise, right, of our, of our charge and our focus. I think the, the way it unfolds itself through, through the culture that is, that is uh, historically, you know, interwoven in the way that the, the academic structure exists 
is really what needs to be interrogated. So I don't think that educational uh, contexts are bad or innately racist. I think that the way that they have been ordered and structured and continue to carry on are systemically racist and exclusive. So, and that would include the way in which all of our disciplines are organized as well and housed under that, that umbrella. That's part of my answer. I need to keep thinking about <laughs> the next step or if anyone else wants to jump in. Well, and so in our discipline, Maria, um, um, uh, and probably all our disciplines, what the way that that is ordered and structured in the classroom sometimes or oftentimes plays out in sort of seeing the, the appearance of language first and foremost, what the essay looks like, what the format looks like, how the sentences are structured, where the comma is placed, and that becomes this uh, dominant sort of monolithic approach to language, right? Eric, in communications, is that is that what is that sort of that ordering and structuring and, and do you agree with that like or, or, where Mana started us off how how is teaching language structure is racist so hi i'm eric robertson i teach communication studies um so i it's interesting that you know the way that maria started speaking is with a, a contextualization of who you are and where you're speaking from and i think that when we start looking at the way that our classes are put together it's, it's when we lack those contextual and foundational pieces that you start to have uh, negative impacts because you're, you're, there's an implicit assumption that the thing that's being taught is the right thing, right? It's, it's the one thing that's being uh, kind of accepted as, as correct without context, right? And when you remove it from context, you're saying that this is kind of for, for all contexts. So um, to directly answer your question, are there kind of standards and formats and things like that. Yeah, there are. And it's it's interesting. I think that the way that when I first started teaching public speaking classes, some of the books are very uh, prescriptive in terms of, you know, do this, you know, here's one, two, three, four, you know, like very, you know, this is the introduction. This is the body, very similar to English, but in terms of kind of speeches um, and, you know, eye contact for however many th uh, seconds and, you know, gestures looking like this and uh, very non-culture specific, right? I mean, eye contact as an example, uh, you know, you you go to any Asian country or a lot of different Asian countries and the, the standard for, for eye contact, it means different things there than it would here in the United States. So, you know, that was when I was first exposed to, to teaching it, some of the textbooks that would be used are very straightforward like that. And I think as as I've grown as an instructor, you know, the, the reality is that when you just think of public speaking in general, speeches can be very effective and look completely different. And there are structures that work and there are ways to help people remember things better. But there are also times where you see someone where there's a particular trait that that person has that resonates with the audience that can bust through any of those structures and make it where it was completely relevant and completely uh, appropriate as a, as a choice. So I, I think, so, so to answer your question, yes, those structures do exist uh, without context. I think they can be harmful. Um, and I think with additional context, you know, one of the things that, that I really try to, to see in my classes is finding people who are delivering speeches that uh, embody what it is that you would like to be and that you would like to uh, to see in yourself as a speaker. And sometimes that involves structure. Sometimes that involves just representation of people that look like you have similar backgrounds to you and seeing how people like that can be really successful. And I think that those types of, uh, in the classroom at least, those opportunities make it hopefully less racist, right? Um, but it makes it so it's still, 
providing options, right? It's when you don't provide those options and those different formats that represent different cultures and you don't have that contextual perspective that I think things can kind of go south. Well, and, and the, sour. yeah, the, the, the teacherly move that I hear you making there, Eric, is, is moving away from the prescriptive, the here's what the textbooks say the model is to the descriptive. You ask your students, describe what just happened that was very effective that we might add to our toolkit, right? Denise, that I know that this is how you have writing consultants thinking about writing. It's not a, a do this to make it right or better in your essay move. It's a tell me your ideas. Let's work this out together. Is that does that resonate with you or? It does, um, but I'm going to go somewhere slightly different. Kurt, go go rather, there. Yes. Because rather than thinking about like how our staff works with student writers, what occurs to me listening to this so far is. The, the concept of language or dialect. And really what we think of in um, a college setting, what Sean brought up in a college setting as standard academic prose, right? I'm a writing center, so um, it's about us producing words that we then put on paper and, and those words have an order as well as you know a vocabulary, a syntax, many, many elements. But we think of that as English when we're in the academy far too often. And the way in which that's racist is that really it's one dialect among many, right? And so I think to demonstrate what I mean by that, I wanna go outside the American context because I think inside the American context, it's harder for us to see because literally we live with the racism as if it's not, right? So if we go, to Great Britain, and we think about the difference of listening to a Scottish person talk or an Irish person talk, right? I can't even do that one, sorry. But if, if literally those dialects, we hear them as dialects. And as outsiders, we don't necessarily value one of those above the other. And yet insiders clearly have that. We have the Pygmalion story, right? Eliza Doolittle and her inability to speak the correct English. Um, in that case, as a class issue, not a race issue. And yet, it, it just, I think, demonstrates this notion of how humans develop prejudices easily about, lang about language and about not just do people look different, but do they sound different? I think that's really important as a human, right? Um, and so in the, to come back to the American context, in the US, the racism of our, of our language uh, privilege uh, of what dialects are privileged and of what dialects are not becomes very racist. So on a on a regional scale, we can just think of the South, and we we have that. But do we have that in part because the South was the Confederacy and the South South had plantations and um, slaves longer than the North did? Do we? I'm not sure. Um, we we are clearly prejudiced against black English vernacular. You can find that in many, many places. I'm sure Maria can tell us deeply about, you know, code meshing with, with or Creole of Spanish and English, Spanglish, and how that gets devalued, not just in the academy, but in the culture. And so for me, the racism comes in privileging certain dialects above others. And the, in the academy, that's often seen particularly in writing. In Eric's communication class, 
in certain, depending on who my audience is perceived to be, I can, I can jive in a variety of ways. But when I'm writing, I'm so often, like by the time I get to college, I've been told so many times that I have this limited dialect I'm supposed to put on if it's not my natural dialect. And it, it's, it's racist, it's unfair, it's inequitable. Um, well, I have a question for you, Denise. So as students, when we come into the classroom or in the into the writing center, I feel like we don't want to be the initiator. We always want to ask your guidance and your help. So how do you approach like our work in a non-racist way, in a way that, you know, we only get to be ourselves, you know, embrace our nationalities, our dialects, our accents, because I feel like when we step into your offices, we don't, we actually don't know because we think, you know, when you step into community college, you're here to learn something, but you know, what if we're learning the wrong thing? So how do you approach that? Thanks, Juana. That's a, that's a great question. Um, and it's, it's a, it, one of the benefits of being the writing center is that we, we get to work with students one-to-one. -one. And that means that we really do get to talk to you about your voice and the choices you're making in writing, right? And to encourage you, right? But also to ask what you're, what, what you're looking for and what you've heard from your faculty and, and how much agency you want to exhibit. Sometimes the, the grade is the end, be all and end all. And then we'll ask you about those expectations, right? What are you hearing? Sometimes it's really clear, no, I, this is my story and I want to tell it my way. And we'll encourage you to do that, right? And to, and potentially like help coach you on a, a conversation with your faculty member in or outside of the classroom, depending on the situation. But we're going to, we're going to ask you some questions about your purposes with this paper, not just um, as well as what the purposes, I think, for the class, for the faculty member, for the discipline are, and then create a rich context for conversation about the choices you make because of all of those elements. I wanted to uh, comment, if possible, because uh, I, I really like, I think that Mana's question is, is really the core of the issue. And uh, because of, of the, this searching for a standard in a way, and and in searching for the standard, it coming to us. So our position, which is privilege in a good way, in, in in this in this situation, because we can really initiate a conversation, and we can explain all the issues that are around the language, like Maria explained very well. When we teach in a language class, when we teach grammar, and we teach, and we want students to acquire grammar instead of language, which is another thing because we teach about the language instead of teaching the language. Then at that point, we favor traditional, I, I don't have the good definition, you can help me out, but traditionally good students, students who study about a topic. While it's, it's clear from research that language acquisition is something that we can do because we all did it once, and because learning a second language is fundamentally the same as learning the first language, is we use the same internal mechanism, then we can all do it again. So it's something that we should, all our students should be able to do with differences in speed, but it's key that we, I was thinking about the first question, you know, and the, the way that we insert biases in our teaching, that's a, 
teaching grammar and uh, asking students to reply to to use that grammar in two weeks or in three weeks and teaching seven different articles like it is in Italian and uh, the first month and and testing them that they have the, that clearly favors a certain group of students and, uh, versus another one. Well, it should be exactly the opposite because we can all learn a language. So I think that it's we have a key role here and we should not shy away uh, from uh, explaining all these things and sharing all these uh, different aspects and importance and issues with language that, that there are uh, in the world. And so, and welcome uh, diverse expressions. I have it easy because I teach language. <laughs> so for me, it's, it's uh, it, I, I kind of have to explain by, to the students the way that languages are uh, acquired. And uh, so it's, uh, that's definitely helps me. But I think that in all, all the disciplines that can be related to this, they can, instructors can do something and can, even if it's not the core of their curriculum, but present these issues. And so with that, though, uh, very quickly, Andrea, like what, what do you think of the the way that you're teaching languages and the formal versus the informal, the formal versus the indigenous, the formal versus how they might actually experience the language? Is there a difference, I guess? Is there a distinction between how they may actually experience the language if they were to visit a country that, that speaks that language versus what is what is being taught to them in in kind of I don't want to use the word standard, but in in these college classrooms that that focuses on languages. Well, uh, in in for for what we teach in the first couple of years of a language, it's uh, it's difficult to expose the students to a, a big variety. I mean, we have to work with the foundationals that are. Um, so thinking about Italian, for example, the different dialects, uh, it's, uh, the, the students won't be able to understand different dialects because, and I share this with my students, I am not able to understand different dialects from Italy. It's, it's completely, if I, if I go a couple, like the, the next region, I can understand two regions, it becomes a little bit more difficult. Three regions away, which we're talking about like three hours by car, the dialect spoken is completely impossible if i i'm from the north if i go to the south and uh, speaking with a sicilian person or a neapolitan they, they speak dialect it it's just it's impossible to understand so there in, in italian there's a, a need of a common ground in, uh, to communicate but there are certainly the situations like denise was uh, talking about uh, great britain and uh, the different dialects and there's definitely uh, racism of northern uh, Italy versus the South. So the, the, the way that they speak is not considered uh, appropriate. And so we find the same, the same situation in Italy too, definitely. Can I jump in here as well? Um, so I think context is super important and to contextualize, like we have, sometimes when I think of dialect, I can't help but to think about how it's, how often dialect is used, at least in the quote, American standard, you know, of English as a, as a negative, as a negative thing, that it has this negative connotation. 
Um, or when you speak Spanish, like I'm bilingual and I, or if I use Anzaldúa's terms, I'm actually multilingual because I can speak Spanglish. I can speak, you know, I have Anglicisms that I play with, you know, because ultimately language is a code. So if we find the, the, the proper code to communicate with our people, community, or our audience. I think it was, you know, Eric, you're talking about audience. Audience is about the context. So I'm not going to walk into, you know, my mom's house, uh, you know, in Santana as a, in a working class neighborhood and begin speaking my professorial, you know, tone. Like that's just not going to work. She probably will understand it, you know, and will engage, but that's just not the context and that's not my audience. So, you know, I think it's important to also acknowledge that dialect and teaching of languages is also like about linguistics, it's all phonology, you know, all of that. And then there's like the, the aspect of composition studies in English that is not necessarily about linguistics, but it's not completely divorced from that. We have grammar, but we have sort of the way that we're tracking our students thinking and how they quote articulate their thoughts, right? And I want to use articulate as a jumping point to maybe speak about how language is delivered or, or English is delivered or English is. I've often been told, you're very articulate, Maria. And I'd say, of course I am. Why am I would why wouldn't I be? But it's usually come it's usually come from white folks, you know, who say you're very articulate because the 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 perception is that I am a woman of color. I have a Spanish last, you know, Spanish last name, and therefore you must be, you know, foreign, and therefore English must be your second language. Um, when it's actually, you know, my parallel language. I broke. I, I woke. I woke up. Yeah, I woke up parallel, bilingual. But yes, I did. <laughs> so, this notion of articulate is already an innately racist notion. You know, for anyone who is not white and speaks English, you know, or is not of European ancestry. So I, I use, I like to use uh, Jamila Lescott's uh, you, TED talk where she's, it's, it's a spoken word piece and she's delivering it to, I think a college audience. And she talks about being a tri-tongue orator. You know, she speaks English. I think it's Trinidadian, you know, quote dialect speak, right? And she says, all three of my languages are equal because I am articulate. And so she is articulate among her community, among her audiences. And, and even goes further to say that even articulate Americans sound foolish to the British. So I, I think that that is such a, an important point, you know, and to your point, Denise, that we imagine ourselves. We have this fantasy, I think, in, in the United States of, of America that, that our English is the sole English, but really which English is it? Is it Midwestern? Is it South? Is it Tejano English, border tongue? Is it Northeastern? Because when I was at, you know, at Dartmouth up in the Northeast, I was, I was hearing all kinds of Englishes. So it's, it's very interesting and, and the context again is important, but it's also important to speak about it within the cultural component and the cultural aspect and context of, of the language or, or, or linguistic 
You know, a lot of things you brought up, Maria, that what we're talking about, though, is something that's so deep in hegemonic culture, right? Like this is, I'm glad you brought up the ideas of context and also language as a code, because the larger societal context where there are these dominant ideas of what is needed for success and how that ties into the work we do with students as faculty, I think it's important to consider because we, we have that term code switching, right? And this is basically the idea that people are strategic in their presentation of self and they implement uh, strategies that are dependent on the context situation audience. So it seems like the goal or aim explicitly, but probably more importantly, implicitly of many college courses is either to equip, equip students with strategies, those strategies to effectively code switch or assimilate them to the point where they internalize that culture and believe that to be right and believe that to be correct and legitimate and, and, and the way of doing things. So I guess my, my question to the group for anybody is, is the goal, is our goal more, more effective code switching? Is that, is that the goal? Or is it um, as change agents who are charged with eradicating the very need for code switching? You know, Sean, for years and years, the, the code switching and not even code meshing, which Roshana Shanti Young talks about, but code, so the code's coming together, right? Which is what Maria has been talking about, as opposed to when you say code switching, that's, I'm speaking, you know, with family here. And so I'm using these kinds of language and I'm speaking with the academy here. And so I'm using this kind of language. Um, for years, I carried the notion that that's like all of us were making an equal choice with that. So code switching was a fine concept, right? And, and it was something to introduce students to because maybe they didn't realize, even though, you know what, when we're pretty young, we start code switching because audience and purpose is always how, how humans communicate, right? But now I, I'm really clear for myself that, that that's not enough. I think it remains a piece of the picture because I do think audience and purpose matters and therefore we each make multiple choices, not one. We, we make this choice every time we're in a new language situation, but it's not enough. You know, like being on this podcast is partially from my standpoint, we've got mostly language oriented faculty here, but it's to those faculty who have, have you know, they've gotten their marks in the academy and whatever other disciplines they're in, and to them, that means academic English does have this certain cachet because that's what they've known. And so that's what they expect from students. And we've got a long history of that. But I don't think that's where we need to go. I think where we're going is to leave that somehow behind. And I, I don't have the answers to all of this because it is complicated, but we need to recognize that there's not one English. We need to recognize that one doesn't have to be privileged above all the rest. And I think we need to get there. I think one of the things we need is a more humble world perspective. Americans just have this, and I'm an American studies scholar. Okay, so I'm taking this on from, from the trenches. Um, Americans have this belief that we are world leaders. And so if we do something like decide our language is best, we want our best part of our language and that's the best everywhere. And it just ain't so. Um, so my, my advocacy, Sean, is, is to our colleagues 
to recognize that they don't have to go down that route. When I taught at Cal State Los Angeles, one of my roles was in the, um, you can call it lots of things, but basically the junior level writing exam. And it was an amazing thing to go to what a norming session. And Mana, a norming session with faculty is like getting us all on the same page about what we're really grading for. And so to go to a norming session for this particular event was this wonderful activity because at Cal State Los Angeles, over a hundred languages are spoken. So to have the faculty recognize that they were looking for communication they could understand, that they were looking for critical thinking, but they weren't looking for every comma to be right. They weren't looking for the syntax to always flow perfectly. As long as the communication occurred, it worked, right? Um, and, and that particular piece, I can't say that my year there was fabulous in every way, but that particular piece gave me hope about the topic that we're talking about today. Thank you, Denise. And um, I heard you say that ain't so, so I did see what you did there. Just gonna note that. Uh, Robert, did uh, Ro uh, Robert, Robert. The second time today I've been called Robert. Like I, Robert is my dad. I'm Eric Robert's son. God, come on. He's uh, really Robert Robertson. Is that real? No, no, I'm just, joke. I'm just messing. I'm just messing. Okay. Um, I was going to be formal. I was going to be formal in my language and say Robertson. Call me Mr. Robertson. If you, uh, okay. So it's, it's funny. I, I've had students call me sir in classrooms and that makes me feel uncomfortable because I'm not sir. Right. But I, I think it's, it's one of the things that we talk about in the, the intercultural classes is power distance and how language can create power distance. And a lot of the, the sir and ma'am talk comes from, you know, from my experience, it's a lot of military families where that, that type of linguistic code shows respect and shows formality. And they bring that into the classroom as a way to, to show respect. And for me, one of, one of my goals, I feel like, is to, to make them stop doing that because I don't want them to see me as the, this person that's far away from them, right? And, and being able to explain different uh, stories of like, you know, how I worked in a gas station and used to work at a bowling alley and clean up vomit and whatnot. And like those sorts of stories make it so uh, by, by understanding where people came from, it makes it so they're less likely to engage in some of those linguistic choices that create the power distance that make it so it feels like professors are, are up here and that students are down here and that we're talking in a certain way. But Anyways, that was kind of a, a Eric Robertson and Robert talk. Uh, but what I wanted to say is that I think when we're kind of we're, we're looking at all of this from these different levels of formality um, in in language. And I think one of the things that COVID has done, and that, you know, we're an example of this right now, is it's been this kind of great deformalizer in terms of meetings, in terms of uh, like attire. Do you remember? It was maybe like four years ago when there was that BBC news person who he was delivering some sort of news article. And then there was the kid who came in the door in the background. And then there was, it was like, a, I think it was the nanny. I don't think it was his, his, the mom. I think it was the nanny. And like, they were crawling around on the ground to try and get them out of the shot. And it was like, oh my gosh. And everyone thought it was so funny. And now it's like, that happens every day uh, in every, like a million <laughs> times over. And nobody really cares anymore. And what's fascinating is like, yeah, of course, that guy was at his house. You could tell. And yeah, he had kids. What, why are we surprised here? And it's this, this fake level of formality that on the news, 
that we were pretending like it it was something that it wasn't. If I, you know, if you watch local news here, Dagmar, who does the weather, always has like animals, like she has a farm that you can hear all these different animals in the background. Um, and it's, I don't know, it, I think it's fascinating, but you look at clothing as, as a, a reflection of this too. You know, I, I see I see language as, as one form of communication, right? And you see, you know, clothing is sending a message, language is sending a message. And you look at like, let's say you're taking a, an academic institution that's requiring uniforms um, compared to one that's not, you know, that says something about the students who are engaging in the formal attire, right? It says something to, to them about the students that are not in the formal attire. Um, and, and we can make justifications for any of this stuff, right? We can say that, well, the reason that we're having uniforms is because it makes it so we have less choice. It makes it so it's easier for some students. It makes it so some students who didn't have the opportunity to, you know, pick out different clothes or something. Now they, they're on the same level as others. But at the same time, when we're uh, saying that this is the, the choice that's being made for you, it, it does some other interesting impacts that we see through, uh, through language here too. But I just think that through COVID though, it, what's really been interesting is to see how People can come. To, I mean, I'm I'm actually on campus because I can't be at home right now because I'm have been doing Zoom sessions in my 11 year old's room because my kids stopped sharing a room and because they're home right now and I want them to be able to you know to hang out in his room and not have me be talking the whole time and you know but sometimes I'll I'll actually be in there and he'll be in there too and and that's fine too but it's what's so interesting is that. I think that COVID has broken down some of those walls um, and we're seeing people a little bit more humanized than before through the way that we're communicating specifically in, in college classrooms, getting to come into the homes of others. And once we start seeing people as, you know, not just in the classroom where we set the rules and we, you know, they come into our space, uh, but now, we're kind of all in a similar space. Yeah, we might be over Zoom or yeah, we might be in Canvas, but in a lot of my classes, there's there's video that's involved. So it feels like we're in their space. So uh, all of those messages that get generated from this informality, it, it ends up, uh, it's, it's different than it was. Uh, it, it feels different. There's maybe less assimilation in terms of the way that we feel like we can communicate and some and you'll you'll see resistance to that too right you see cameras on cameras off policies as well like where some we don't want to force students to show what's in the background uh, because that's that's not our business either um but yeah, it's it's interesting just looking for the ways that things have changed in terms of formality and how that can be reflected in communication which is similar to you know all the language things that, that we've been talking about Andrea, I have a question for you. So one of the things that I have uh, in, in students and in, in classes a lot of times is I'll have students from other countries um, and to deliver a speech in a second language when you're still learning the, that language. Like for example, I have a student right now who's from China who uh, she has maybe been speaking English for about two years. She's very easy to understand, but what she's doing is significantly harder than what anyone else in in the class is doing. So how do you, you know, when you're looking at, at ways that people are, are communicating and the challenges of that, like how, how would you hold them to certain stand? I mean, that, so that, that's one thing that I struggle with. And I think that maybe everyone else can kind of see this too, right? How do you, because I, like certain times I've made exceptions for that student in terms of the length of the speech. And, you know, I'll say the speech should have been five to eight minutes, but 
for this student. I, it, we said it would be longer. In my mind, I'm like, you know, it, I, I can make the time in the class and everyone in the class would still be fine with it. And it's still capturing what it is that we're trying to do here. But I think that I would get pushback from different faculty about that idea, right? Because you are changing standards, but I think you're just adjusting them to make them reflect more of what, what it should be. Um, but as someone who teaches language, what, what do you think? That's, that's what we have been doing. Actually, that's most of the conversation that we've been having in the, in the languages department in the last years, uh, because uh, we were requiring too much, too, too much grammar accuracy, for example. So we were paying attention too much about at, uh, uh, grammar and structures. And we are going actually towards, like Denise, <laughs> like Denise uh, presented the, the, the anecdote on uh, um, being comprehensible. So if, you, if somebody is able to transfer their, their ideas and they're comprehensible to the other person, to a, an Italian speaker, uh, then that would be, that's, uh, that's acceptable. In, uh, we are revising everything that we ask for from the students because most of the times, uh, especially with an old uh, approach more of, on, uh, on grammar, uh, instructors, we were asking to produce too early to the students, and we were not respecting the silent period that at the beginning the students need to have in order to uh, absorb and acquire the language. So uh, we are changing, we're changing, we're developing, uh, Pilar Hernandez developed uh, uh, an entire course for, for, for Spanish uh, for the first three, three semesters of Spanish. So we're, we're trying to do the same also with, with French and, in, and Italian. Uh, so we'll have all this material in as a open educational resources, but yeah. So the bottom line is that it's too early. You cannot force it, and uh, there's just it's not going to happen. The, the 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 brain just needs a certain amount of time to acquire all that uh, all that information, and 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 that's probably too early. So. I, I don't know how you want to <laughs> judge that. I don't, I don't want to answer that for you. Um, but yeah, that's that's my, yeah. That's my well, and this, this just reminds me of, Denise, what you were bringing up earlier about purpose, right? And what are, and so your question, Eric, like really, really, what are we measuring, right? That That's what it's coming down to. Are we, um, are we measuring form and are we conflating form with purpose, right? Um, and on the other side, if we, if we decide so effective communication, that's the outcome we're going for. So the transfer of ideas from a human to a human, if that's the purpose, it, it really just becomes a matter of you did it or you didn't do it, right? Um, and so th these are really important questions for us to ask. Like, and, and again, positioning the student. So th this notion of positionality has come up a lot, and I hope we continue to explore it. But if we position the student as stating their purpose, then they get to be the agent of that language, right? And what they want to achieve and perform in that product, then we then get to assess. Yeah, those sorts of exceptions for that particular student that I was talking about, allowing for more time for the speech, it, it works with one student. But if I were to have 20 students who were in a similar situation, uh, I don't know, it, like, is, is the structure of the course then, because it's, not reflecting their, you know, the ability for, for where they're coming from, specifically from a different culture, is the, the structure that I've imposed through time limits on my course racist, right? Is that, is that a yeah. possibility? And, you know, and it's interesting because if, 
if I'm able to do it with one student, but then I can't make it make that work with 10 students or 20 students, like does you can see if, if there is a, a racist inflection point or whatever, it's at 20 students where the structure actually gets, uh, you know, specifically constrained to a point where uh, it, it's, it's doing harm. Well, and, and I, I, Denise, I want you to jump in, but I just want to throw this out there as a response. I think asking ourselves, to what extent can we teach, if this is the right verb, home languages? How do we begin with home languages as the form and, and then we can sort of nudge the purpose. So if, if what we need to build up is a skill set, can you sustain a conversation for five minutes in front of human beings with eyeballs pointing at you? Who cares what language they're speaking? We're just gonna practice sustaining a conversation. Once we get comfortable in that space, maybe then we start playing with language, right? I mean, that, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking as a, as a composition teacher. I like the question being asked, Eric. Right, like how do I work with a student who's coming from China and, and yet, you know, has only had been taking English for two years and is asked to present? But when you point to, you know, I have colleagues who I think would be very upset if they knew I, you know, if if we made this public, I just like to point out one definitional piece, and that's fairness versus equity. It might not seem fair to give one student a different time length, but is it equitable? And I think that's the shift, one of the shifts in that question that as faculty, we need to ask. And to clarify, I think that everyone in my department here would be fine with it, but thinking about more national organizations, I, I can definitely see some people who would think that a move like that wouldn't, wouldn't be appropriate. And I thought beyond your department too, so I wasn't yeah. casting aspersions at anyone. <laughs> Just to clarify. And this, this has come up on this podcast recently, this, this question about okay, this all sounds really great. We wanna empower our students as agents and we also wanna prepare them for this sort of, right, socioeconomic situation that's been, that's monolithic, that's fixed in this sort of patriarchal white sort of, you know, culture. And so do we do a disservice to our students when we don't prepare them for that, right? So, but that, that makes me think, Maria, where you started, right? When we embrace, we just accept that as given, then we turn difference into deficiency, right? We just sort of, we, we, we have that, we, bring, we come to the classroom with deficiencies on our radar. This, this, this idea of articulation, um, Maria, you introduced, and I really hope we keep chasing after this one too. I, I remember Stuart Hall from my graduate studies. He, he introduces this idea of articulation as something physical, that when you articulate, right, what you do is you take things that have linkages and you move them into different shapes. And so articulation is actually an expression of agency. I'm taking a thing that exists and I'm making it what I want it to be. And so the fact that when we say you're articulate, we're assuming that dominant white standard English, right? We're saying by virtue of speaking this way, you have that agency, right? Which is not true. I, I'm just speaking it because I grew up in it. It's my privilege that I sound that way. It doesn't have anything to do. And what we also do is we erase possibilities for other articulations, right? So I've been thinking about code switching a lot and I'm not sure if it's actually something that's necessary in our lives or if it's something that we're forced to do because of that linguistic bias. So Sean, like, what do you think? Do you think it's, it's something that 
we're just inclined to do as humans or it's something that we kind of learn as we go in this society? I mean, it has to be both. You know, we want what are, what are the main things we're trying to do? We're trying to survive. We're trying to gain resources. We're trying to, you know, supply resources for the people around us. And to do that, you have to be successful, whatever that means in any given context. And to be successful in any given context, you have to code switch to whatever that context is calling for. And we often call that culture. But culture cannot, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not something that can be divorced from um, the idea of capitalism or from social class, right? We like to think of them, think of it that way that, you know, different classes have different cultures and, you know, there's a highbrow culture, there's a lowbrow culture, there's working class culture, there's upper middle class culture, but those are all contingent on the economic forces that play a huge part in our lives, right? And the racial forces and the gender forces and the sexualities, all of these different things. So when we're in a certain situation, we're looking for cues, right? Of how we're supposed to act. And we usually pick that up from other people. But when those cues are not there for us or we're in an unfamiliar space, it becomes a lot more difficult to code switch because you don't know the code, right? And then you have to crack the code. I'm glad I don't have to think about code switching until I'm in uh, until we're having a conversation about it, right? Because if I did, I would be so fucking exhausted all the time. It's exhausting enough to code switch unconsciously, subconsciously in all these different contexts. If I had to think about code switching while I'm doing it, that's double taxing, you know, my my uh, my brain and and I might do it wrong just because I'm I know that I have to perform in a certain way. It's come naturally to me because I'm multi-ethnic and I'm multiracial. You know, I, I know in certain spaces that that identity in itself has given me a lot of um, access to certain social contexts, and I'm able to uh, conform to them better because I'm not fully a member of any racial or ethnic group, um, if that makes sense. So it is something that I think a lot. Uh, I think about a lot. And to answer your question. Yes, we have the natural tendency to do what we need to do to be successful in any given context, code switching. And then we also learn how to code switch based on our experiences, but how our identity and how we identify and how people identify us, how, how that develops for any type of place where, where we find ourselves in. Yeah, Mona, I imagine you know, your experience, so you're, you're a computer science major, you're originally born in Iran, isn't that is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so what what like what have your experiences been just by virtue of, you know, coming to the America, entering into public education system, now computer science as another sort of cultured space. How like what your experience code switching? I'm really curious. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, just like Sean, I mean I'm only, you know, 100% Iranian, but I do feel like at home, it's just this different personality where I'm, you know, speaking Farsi all the time with my parents and I'm acting in a different way. And then when I step outside or, you know, actually right now, when, when I'm at the computer, you know, I'm speaking English, my attitude is a little different. So I do feel like, you know, uh, it's something that I've learned and I don't have to think about it just like Sean said, because, you know, otherwise it would definitely be exhausting because you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to think about it and just <laughs> realize what you're doing, you know, each moment. 
but I do feel like it's it's something that that I know I should do because I know if I don't do that, I'm not going to succeed and I won't be able to communicate with people because if I communicate in a way that I communicate with my parents, that's not going to work and and I'm not going to get any feedback that's going to be useful. So it's like this this thing that I know I have to do it. Otherwise I'm going to fail or I won't be able to kind of uh, move forward. Yeah. But what about you, Curry? Yeah. So as a teacher, I, I, I often, this is a strategy I employ early in a semester for like an introductory, like 100 level English class. Um, I talk about, you know, okay, who's a baseball fan? Uh, you know, who, who's into comic books or the Marvel universe? And we have that sort of, what are your hobbies? What are your interests? And that really quickly illustrates this concept of, of discourse, right? I speak this way to these folks who know this stuff, maybe a group I'm just entering into, I'm hearing language that I'm, I'm, it's becoming familiar, but I can't quite speak it myself. And then I use that to, you know, that's all we're going to do in this class. It's, we're studying a discourse, a discourse that professionals use, that uh, rhetoricians use, you know, uh, uh, for argument or persuasion. That's all this is, you know, you have lots of you know, how you think, how you feel, the knowledges you have, you know, all we're doing is studying a, a basically a toolkit. But w- one of the things that always comes up in my class and, and, and that's really fascinating is we'll be talking about how do I represent an experience? And a student uh, who, who's, who's bilingual or trilingual will often say, you know, the first word that comes to my mind is not an English one. Like the first word that comes to my mind when I feel this or I experience that is not in in this language, you know, English, it's in my native language. And so that's great because then we get to say, well, bring that in, right? Like that's your voice, like that there's space for that. Let's, let's see what happens. Let's, let's, um, but so I want to ask you a question, Mana. So first, does that, do you share that experience? Does that resonate with you? And then second, Having, having studied something like computer science, is there anything in computer science where the first word that comes to mind isn't an English one? Is it, do you, in a discipline that you maybe haven't studied in your, your native language, does, does your na- native language break through in that? Like, are you thinking in, in Farsi when you get, I'm really fascinated in that discipline. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that happens all the time. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, especially when I get excited. Cool. Um, cool. It's just, you know, there are just certain words that kind of describe your feeling just better in Farsi or they're just there's like this lack of words in English or even in Farsi where you can't describe it. You know, sometimes I, I'm talking to my Iranian friends and then I come up with, you know, and I say something in English and they're like, oh, wow, <laughs> why do you have to say that in English? Or, you know, there are times where I can where there's no way I can express um, how I'm feeling. So I totally get that. And I think it's just something that, you know, you have different experiences when you're speaking different languages and it's hard to kind of put everything into one language and, you know, kind of what's it called? Expect to describe everything using that one one language. And I feel like knowing multiple languages really helps you because you kind of have this different perspective and, you know, all these different words that can actually help your articulation and help how you kind of 
express yourself. And I think that's the same thing with coding. You know, there's something that you just learn when you learn to code and you don't have that in English. So you might know something or you might know this way of articulation where you can kind of use it in English. So you might look like a freak or a nerd, but that's really what it is. There, there's nothing that you can compare it with in English. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. That that is fascinating because I think about this all the time. Like it, when when the topic of uh, acculturation comes up, right? And I feel like that's like one of the final steps. Is is I ask people, do you still do you still think in Farsi? Do you still think in Tagalog? Do you still think in Spanish? Right? And when that individual no longer mostly thinks in that language. I feel like that acculturation process is like really solidified, you know, when they start thinking in English and sometimes like Curtis bringing up certain things will kind of trigger or prompt you to think in Farsi, right? Because there's just a better way of saying it or better way of um, expressing that particular idea, right? Or, or feeling. Um, so yeah, that, that is really interesting. I feel like this idea of, um, of code switching because it's necessary, right? Everybody, most people do this, right? Even if you are of the dominant class or, or dominant group, you still have to do it when you're with your family is different when you're in a professional meeting, when it's different than when you're, you know, at your place of worship or whatever, right? You're going to code switch. And it goes against this really cliche idea in society where people say you should always be yourself, mm. right? What does that even mean? Let me ask this question. Uh, and I want to hear both of your answers. So Mana first, when do you feel you are most your true self? That's a really hard question. <laughs> um, well, I think when I... When I'm in a place or an environment that I feel safe to be me, I think that's when I'm actually my true self. When I know I'm not going to be judged or criticized, I think that's when I feel comfortable to kind of like show multiple sides of myself, you know, because I know that that person that's standing there or the community or like a group of people who are talking to me are not going to kind of box me in a way I won't be in just like one box but there's going to be multiple boxes that I can fit into so I think when when people kind of have that attitude towards you that's that's when I think I can kind of open up and just be myself so with that answer I love that answer so that self that needs the safety to be more open isn't that though part of your true self? I guess so. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm digging. I'm digging today, folks. Yeah, I'm yeah. digging. Yeah, Curry. <laughs> same question. When do you feel like most your true self? Uh, I I think I think when I'm being quiet. To tell you the truth, <laughs> like when I'm so never on this podcast. <laughs> no, never on this podcast. I'm always a version of me on this podcast. Yeah, and and I I I I don't mean quiet and not expressive. I mean, like hanging out with good friends and just being right. I think that's what I mean. I mean when I when I consider my own ontology, I'm thinking of just me, you know, on a walk or me visiting with Yushan, uh, me with my family. Yeah, 
that's where I think I'm my most self. Yeah, and, and see, I feel like those are conceptions that come to mind when that question is brought up, right? I think we are our true selves at all times. Even in those times when the culture or people around us say, that's not really you, like stay true to yourself. But it is really you because you're doing whatever that thing is, thinking however you're thinking, acting in however you're acting. That's real, right? It's not an abstraction. I think the idea of a true self is an abstraction if we're not going to connect it to who we are at all times. And the self in sociology, we look at it sometimes as you're not your true self unless you're completely alone, right? right. And yeah. when you're completely alone, that's your true self. Because when you're alone, you may think and do things that you would never want other people to know, sure. right? And so that is your true self. Or if you want to go to psychology, the shadow self has like more of a, uh, the Carl Jung idea that it has more of a, it's playing a, a bigger role when you're by yourself and you're alone with your thoughts. And what, what really um, brings the self into focus, because when you're in yourself, when you're in that, it, it, looking inward and thinking, you don't really think of yourself. It's just what you're thinking. When even the idea of somebody entering that space with you, just like if somebody were to call you and say, I'm on the way home. Now you enter the social because you are now thinking about what the context is like when that person comes, they're on their way. And that totally changes the way that you see the situation, the world and yourself, because you're going to perform now. You're gonna perform whether it just be for one other person. And so I, I really, like talking about this idea of the self and when we are our true selves because I think there's never a time when we're not yeah I never thought of it like that so you just changed my world <laughs> I think about it way too much <laughs> students and faculty engage topics dangerous discussions need a safe space This episode is supported by the Miracosa Foundation's Innovation Grant. The Safe Topics podcast is produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia handles promotion, student recruitment, and research. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and safetopics.podbean.com. Find us on Apple and Spotify. Please rate and subscribe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>